God is sovereign. He is sovereign over creation, over history, really over everything. Psalm 103.19 tells us that He has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty, sovereignty rules over all. His sovereignty is absolute, meaning that His choices controls all things, everything. And in His sovereignty, He has given man freedom. That is the ability to choose what we want. Freedom that, of course, comes with responsibility and accountability. We are responsible to God for the choices we make and the actions we take. Now, God's sovereignty does not diminish man's freedom. It rules over it. We see this taught in, in, in Scripture uh, in many places. <clears throat> For instance, Genesis 50:20, where when Joseph conf was confronting his brothers, and they were afraid that uh, he was going to retaliate for them selling him into slavery, uh, said to them that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to, in order to bring about this result, the result of them being in Egypt. Leviticus 27 says, you, you uh, shall consecrate yourself therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So they have the responsibility to consecrate themselves, really to sanctify themselves, but it is the Lord who sanctifies them. Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is, a, who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so we see this... Tension between God's sovereignty at work and our responsibility, our choice. However, when it comes to God's sovereignty over salvation, that is a doctrine that is most offensive to sinners. J.C. Ryle writes, Of all the doctrines of the Bible, none is so offensive to human nature as the doctrine of God's sovereignty. To be told that God is great and just and holy and pure, a man can bear. But to hold that he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, that he give no account of his matters, that it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. These are truths that natural man cannot stand. And throughout church history, the road is littered with attempts to reject or subordinate one of these truths to the other. However, Scripture demands that we affirm both of these positions and to affirm them simultaneously in order to be true to the Word of God and to our Christian experience. For, for none of us can deny that we were the ones who, who choose to follow Him. We are the ones who choose to come after Him, to believe in Him. While at the same time, we cannot deny that there are certain people, certain circumstances, events, influences that played a role in our decision over which we had no control, which all fell under the sovereignty of God. So God is the one who is active in salvation. He initiates, 
it and then through people, events, circumstances, His Spirit, He brings it about so that we would respond willingly and freely. Now, our passage this morning shows us God's sovereignty in salvation, yet it does not exclude man's responsibility to respond. We have to exercise our will in coming to Christ. And so last week we saw Jesus denouncing uh, the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum for really not responding, not exercising their will and coming to Him. And this morning we see that in spite of that disappointing result, that Jesus praised the Father for He knew that the Father is sovereign over matters of salvation. No one can be saved apart from God revealing Himself to sinners. That is His way. And at the same time, man has to come. Man has to respond. We have to respond. And so from our passage this morning, we will find these truths uh, revealed to us, put, put side by side for us in Jesus' teaching. We will see His sovereignty, God's sovereignty in salvation, and we see man's responsibility. We see that those who will come to Christ will come by the will of Christ and by the ways of Christ. And so let, follow along as we read Matthew 11, verse 25 through to 30. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 reads, And at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have given, sorry, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, we come, Lord, in need of your grace. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the ministry of your word. We thank you for your spirit, Lord, and we ask that you would implant this in our hearts. Lord, help us to receive, help us to understand. Lord, may your word shoot down strong and firm roots into the soil of our hearts so that it will sprout up and bear fruit to the glory of your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so first of all this morning, for those who come to Christ, they come by the will of Christ. Um, we see here that Jesus praised the Father. He confessed the Father for being sovereign over all of creation. Verse 25 says, at that time. So when was this? Well, the answer really we find in, in Luke 10 when um, we see that these words were spoken by Jesus, uh, not, not directly as in, in the text of Matthew after the denouncement of those cities, but after the disciples that he sent out, the 70, returned to him and reported to him how great it is that, the, that the, even the demons were subject to them. And Jesus reminded them that they should not rejoice in that, but rejoice that their names are written in heaven. 
Remember uh, Matthew's gospel, he set out not to write a chronological account of Jesus' life, but really to present his main thesis, and that is that Jesus is king. And so he compiled different uh, teachings, events together, not necessarily chronologically. And so here we see that Jesus praised the Father. The original really says he confessed the Father. He confessed that God is Father and that He is Lord of heaven and earth. Now, when we say confess, really it means that we are agreeing, that we are saying the same thing. So in the context of sin, it would be that we agree with God about the nature of our sin, that it is evil and that it is an offense against God and that it is an offense and really a transgression of His law and His character and that it deserves His just judgment and that we are guilty of it. That is our confession. Now, when we confess God as Father and Lord as Jesus, that our confession actually changes into praise. We are saying, we are affirming these truths of Him. And so Jesus confessed, he praised the Father as God and as creator, really as ruler over creation. He is Lord of the universe. That means, in essence, Jesus was affirming the Father's sovereignty, his ownership, his authority, and his control over all things in the universe. He confessed that the Father reigns, that His will and His ways are the ultimate and final authority in the universe. And as the sovereign Lord, He is in His full right to hide these things from the wise and the intelligent and to reveal it to infants. Now the question is, what, is, what are these things? What are they exactly? Do they refer to what was spoken just before? Or what is to follow? Or both? Or maybe even more than that? Now I think that in confessing the Father as Lord of heaven and earth, I understand these things to be the sum total of God's revelation to man. All about Himself and of course about His salvation that is offered in Christ. And so... These things would refer to God's revelation of Himself to man, which is both general as well as specific or special. It includes His general revelation that His creation revealed Him to be the God of creation and His invisible attributes and His eternal power and His divine nature has been made known to all and every man on the planet of earth. And that revelation is sufficient to condemn all persons who do not follow it to come and worship Him as Creator. Romans 8, sorry, Romans 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So by God's sovereign will, He revealed Himself in creation. 
And man's response is responsible to respond in worship. But how does unregenerate man respond to this revelation? Verse 21 tells us that even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And so these things, I believe, is the general revelation of God to man, but also the specific or special revelation that is needed for salvation. That is, that man has to acknowledge and realize that he is sinful and therefore under God's judgment, that man is in need of repentance, and that Jesus is the Savior, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, that he is Christ the King, the King of the kingdom of heaven. And so these things would include hiding and revealing the significance of Jesus' miracles. Sorry, affirming his person, uh, really the, the supernatural proofs uh, that Jesus is Christ, uh, that he is God incarnate, that he came to save people and to establish his kingdom, God's kingdom on earth in the fullness that God intended. And so it also includes not only his miracles, but also his message that he preached and that John preached before him and his disciples preached when he was, they were sent out, announcing that the kingdom of heaven is near that Jesus is the King, the Christ, the Messiah. And so it means that these things are what God the Father hides or reveals to the hearts and minds of men. Now Jesus praised the Sovereign Father that this is His will, which is higher than ours, which is purer and more perfect to hide these things from the intelligent and the wise and to reveal it to infants. So who are the intelligent and the wise? Well, some seek to limit this to really the Pharisees and the scribes of, of the day, those who are wise and intelligent, really the learned in their societies, they that who, who received the oracles of God and who studied them and they have the law and the prophets. Uh, certainly it would include those. Certainly the, the wise and the intelligent would include uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. But also Jesus just denounced the cities in which he performed most of his miracles. He denounced them for not receiving him, for not believing in him, for not responding to his ministry. They were a fault-finding, indifferent generation. So surely that must include them as well. But the focus here is, is not education. God is not anti-intellectual. Just as much as with infants, it's not, the focus is not the size or the age that is in mind here. The contrast Jesus draws here is between those who are pridefully independent and those who are humbly dependent. Those who are wise and learned, pridefully reliant on their own understanding, and those who are like the little ones, humble, in need of learning, who are teachable, willing to learn, willing to receive. So God, as I said, is not against intelligence, not against wisdom, he's not against study, but he's against pride, he's against arrogance. He's against the wisdom of man that exalts itself against his wisdom. 
God's wisdom unto salvation comes to us through the preaching of a servant Christ, a crucified Christ, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Greeks. But to those who are called, it is the power and wisdom of God unto salvation. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us. It goes on to say that that's why there are not many wise, there are not many noble, there are not many uh, mighty that are called. Why? Because they are pridefully independent, self-sufficient. And so Jesus prays the Father that His way is to hide these things, the things necessary unto for our salvation from the proud. And really, people, we have to understand that the, the verb here, to hide, is active. God is actively concealing these things. That, that is the meaning of the miracles and teaching the message of Christ. He's actively concealing it from the proud, from the self-sufficient, from the independent who trusts in themselves. And he is actively revealing the meaning, significance of Christ's miracles and his message regarding the kingdom of heaven to those who are humble, to those who are dependent, to those who are teachable. And he reveals them through his spirit and through circumstances and people and events. And also, people, we need to understand that that is not injustice. The Father, the Lord of heaven and truth, uh, heaven and earth, is not unjust in doing this. Because we come and we think that God's just arbitrarily hiding and revealing these things from people who are neutral to him. When, in truth, they, we all are sinners. That's what the angel said to Mary. Name the baby born of God, Jesus. For he will what? Save his people from their sins. His people, people in general, are sinners. Jesus affirmed this when he taught on prayer in Matthew 7, 11, when he says, If you then, being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Jesus called them evil. The Scriptures declares that from the fall, every man and all of mankind are sinful, are evil, are really wicked. And every thought and intention of our hearts are only ever evil, continually. So, we are not naturally neutral towards God. We are not innocent before Him. We are not helpless in the face of His sovereign decree. We are sinners, born in sin, and we willingly rebel against Him. Our sinful nature is naturally hostile towards Him. We are enemies of God. We defy His will and His ways every day. That is the people. That is who we are. And so God owed them nothing and God owes us nothing. And so therefore withholding and concealing these things by a deliberate act of His will, the things necessary to know about Christ and to know about the Father, to know about the gospel is not unjust. 
It's not unjust. It's not injustice. But it is judgment. It is judgment. And revealing these things through an act of His will, based on no merit of the recipients, is mercy. It is to show mercy to an enemy, mercy to those who are guilty. And people, the, when we think about that and we think about the world and a number of conversations this week just lamenting the state of the world and the state of the Western church and the silencing of the Word of God, the silencing of the gospel. People, to silence the gospel is to invite judgment on yourself. When God conceals it, whether through people or circumstances, that these things necessary for salvation, that is God's judgment. When He gives people over to their passions, their degraded passions, to their depraved minds. And yet, until the day of death, the invitation to all is to come. Come to me. The offer to receive mercy is there. Will you exercise your freedom and choose to come? And so Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, verse 26, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. This was your sovereign prerogative, your sovereign decree, your sovereign desired way and will. And we read in Ephesians 1, a marvelous chapter of, of the spiritual blessings that we have and as found in Christ that Paul just lavished in one massive long sentence, expounded for us. We read that because of His sovereign will, we have been predestined and adopted through Christ. Why? According to the kind intention of His will. We have been redeemed and forgiven according to the riches of His grace. That is His sovereign grace. We have been made, we've been made known the, the mysteries of His will. Why? According to the kind intention of His purpose. Been granted an inheritance after the counsel of His will. Sealing us with His Spirit to the praise of His glory. And back here in verse 26 of Matthew 11, because this was well-pleasing to you. The sovereignty of God in hiding and revealing the things necessary for salvation is according to His good and perfect plan, purposes, and will. And then Jesus makes an important, really, revelation here that all things have been handed over to Him the Father gives true understanding of these things to little children. Now Jesus adds that He is the exclusive agent through whom these things can be received and understood. It is to Him that the Father handed over all things. But it is also through Him 
and only through him that the understanding of these things can be properly grasped and received. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Sorry, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one and anyone knows the Father except the Son and, and, and anyone to whom the Son will wills to reveal him. Again, the all things are not specified. But other passages from Scripture reveals to me that all things literally means all things. All judgment, John 5, 21, all authority, John 17, 2, all authority, power, and dominion, Ephesians 1, verse 21 to 23. However, I think from the context here, all things relate to all things regarding God's elective purposes in salvation, the hiding and revealing of, of these things that are necessary for salvation. And so all things means all things, although probably it has the idea of all authority here. The Father hides and reveals the revelation of God needed for salvation and the execution of his decree is now handed over to Jesus, to the Son. And Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, confessed the Father, gave him the authority to give eternal life to all that the Father has given him. And that eternal life is the gift of knowing God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son. That is, John 17, 2 says, you, have, uh, you gave him all authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, you, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so all authority has been given to Jesus in order to reveal the Father to man. And so the reason why this has been given to him is because the Father is sovereign and because the Father and the Son is intimately acquainted with one another. Jesus said, my Father knows me. He knows the Son. Again, the, the verb know is in its intensive form. It means more than merely knowing of or knowing about it means it communicates a deep, intimate knowledge. The word is sometimes used to describe the intimate knowledge that a husband and a wife would have in their sexual relation. And the father knows the son. This is a deep, comprehensive, intensely personal knowledge. And to, to say that the father knows the son is, is not altogether a shocking statement. Because God is omniscient and He knows all things. He knows everything about everything. But what would have been shocking to Jesus' audience was that Jesus claims that He knows the Father in the same way. That I am as intimately acquainted with the Father as the Father is with me. And I am able, therefore, to make Him known to whom I will. And of course, this does not mean that we will ever know the Father as intimately as the Son, knowledge that springs from sharing of the same nature is not the same as knowledge that comes through revelation. The Son knows the Father and the Father the Son intimately because they share the same substance, the same essence, 
They are the same nature. They are of the same nature. They are the same. They are two persons of the triune God. And only ever Christ and God can know each other as well because they are one. We can only know him through revelation that comes to us through Christ. And so the Father has handed all things to the Son, for the Father knows the Son and the Son the Father. The Greek literally says, no one knows the Father if uh, the Son if not the Father, and no one knows the Father if not the Son. It's translated in my Bible as except. Sometimes it can be translated as like. So no one knows the Son except it be granted him by the Father, and no one knows the Father except he is revealed by the Son. And so to know the Father, we have to look to the Son. And to know the Son is to see the Father. And of course, that has been uh, repeatedly stated in the Gospel of John. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained Him. John 6.46, Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. The Son has seen the Father. John 17, 25 to 26 says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you loved me may be in them and I in them. And then, of course, the best known verse is that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through me. No one knows the Son unless it has been given him by the Father, nor does anyone know the Father unless the Son reveals him. Therefore, John continues to write in his letter, First John 2.23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and whoever confesses the Son also has the Father. In 2 John 9, we read, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in his teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Jesus is the full revelation of God to mankind. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have the Father. You don't worship the God of the Bible. And of course, this has eternal consequences to all the adherents and proponents of other religions and belief systems. All those where Jesus is not Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate, where he is not the Savior from God, that he is not the Christ, that he is not the crucified and risen Christ, that he is not the ascended and exalted Christ, that he is not the coming Christ, the only divinely appointed mediator between God and man, that he is not fully God and fully man, holy God and holy man, that he is not the only truth, the only way and the only life. The only access to God the Father. If you do not have Christ, you do not have God. And can we know 
to whom the Father has made known the Son and the Son has revealed the Father? Well, in some way, no. Not beforehand, anyway. We don't come with a mark on us when we are born that this one will be too wise and too learned for his own good. Or maybe someone else with, this is a little one, teach him. We can only know those who the Father has given to the Son and to whom the Son has revealed the Father to them by those who respond, by those who exercise the freedom of their will to come, to come to Christ, to respond to Christ's calling. The Son reveals the Father to whoever He wills. And what does He will? He wills that you would come. He wills that you would follow Him. He wills that you would know Him so that you will know the Father. He wants you to come to be yoked to Him, to learn from Him. Learn His will and His ways to follow, really, His way of coming to know the Father. And so those who come to Christ come by the will of Christ and also by the way of Christ. Verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, as I said, the will of Christ is for us to come, to come to Him. The will of Christ is for us to take His yoke upon us. His will is for us to come, to be yoked, and to learn from Him, to know Him. His will is for us to find rest for our souls. His will is to reveal the Father to those who choose to come. And so we find in these two verses really an invitation to come, an exhortation to be discipled, and a motivation as to why we should do that. First of all, let's have a look at his invitation. He says, come. Come to me. Come to him who has knowledge of the Father. Knowledge that leads to salvation. Only found in Jesus. Come to him is to believe in him. To trust in him. To be willing to be taught by him. It is to come, of course, by faith. And that is a gift of God. And so the invitation is to come to Him, forsaking all and other means and methods, all other hopes, gods or idols. And it's an invitation that is, that is general in nature. It is to all, in the sense of all tribes, tongue, nations, age, sex, personality, social standing, anyone and everyone are able to come. But it's also a specific invitation. It's for those who are weary and heavy laden. 
for those really not the wise and the intelligent who depends on themselves and rely on themselves and are assured that their way will provide for them a way to the Father. But to the little ones, the humble ones, to those who are poor in spirit, the ones who mourn their sin, the ones who thirst after righteousness, the ones who recognize their need for a Savior, those who are weary and heavy laden, the weary ones are those who are tired, not from, from physical labor, but from their spiritual endeavors, their, their attempts to be right with God out of themselves. And that they find that in spite of what they do, there is no soothing of their conscience. There is no respite of their guilt. There is no solution. The weary ones are those who realize that their best efforts are but filthy rags before God. They are the ones who are heavy laden. Those who are burdened by their sin. Burdened by the many rules and regulations, certainly in Jesus' day, of the Pharisaical Judaism that was placed upon them. That in order for you to be right with God, you have to be governed and ruled by all of these extrapolations from the law. Jesus later denounced the religious leaders saying, You tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Matthew 23, 4. It is the burden of self-righteousness. It is wearisome to the soul. I remember one time speaking to a, a man in... was in Taipei, uh, and he believed that by doing good, by doing good deeds, that he would be saved. And so I asked him, how many deeds is enough? And he said, I don't know. I don't know. I just have to keep on, keep on doing in the hope that it would be enough. That is a heavy burden to carry. And so the invitation here is, come. If you are heavy laden, if you are burdened, if you are weary from that burden, then, then come. Come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. Okay, it's not that Jesus said, okay, no more work. That's not what he means here. And just the verses following will make it clear that Jesus himself has a yoke and a burden to bear. But Jesus is offering rest to your soul, a rest that refreshes your soul, that invigorates your soul, that enables your soul. A rest from uncertainty, from, from fear, from anxiety, from despair. A rest that is full of peace. Peace with God, Romans 5.1, and also peace of God, Philippians 
And it is a rest that comes with the assurance that one standing in the Lord is secure. It is accepted because of Him and not of ourselves. It is based on the fact that we have come to Him, that we have placed our faith in Him. And it is a rest that enables the soul to heed His exhortation. And His exhortation is that we should come to be discipled. Take my yoke upon you. His exhortation is to come and submit yourself to Him. Lay aside all and any other yoke that you may be under. Take upon yourself His yoke, His ways, His teaching. And of course, the picture here is of an animal that is yoked, uh, that, is, that is really connected to a burden, to a an, to an cart or a plow that is to, to, to draw a heavy burden. It binds that animal to that cart, to the, to the, to the burden. Now, when that term is used in the New Testament of people, it is usually used metaphorically, signifying the submission that one has to something or someone. The yoke really represents all your obligations that you have towards the one you are yoked to. Now the religious leaders of Jesus' days, they misinterpreted, they altered, they augmented the law of God to such a level that uh, the yoke that the national teachers of Israel laid upon the soldiers of the people was totally unwarranted legalism. And Jesus decried that, as we said before, that they have placed a burden on these men that they themselves are not willing to bear. And of course, the apostles refuse at the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 when the circumcision party required circumcision of the Gentiles. The apostles responded in Acts 15.10, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And Paul wrote in Galatians 5.1, It was for freedom that Christ sets us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say this, that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. The yoke that we are called to take upon ourselves is the yoke of Christ. It's not the yoke of the law. Our discipleship is to Him. It is not to the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And so we must come and submit ourselves to Christ. We must come and bound ourselves to Christ. We must learn from Him. And it is not... That as if we are yoked together with Christ pulling this burden, as attractive as that may sound, and, and there is some truth in it, that certainly Christ comes alongside us and helps us in our walk with Him, in our disciple. That is true uh, when you use yoke in the sense of a partnership. But that's not what Jesus is meaning here. What He is saying is, bind yourself to me. Come and yield to me. 
Accept me as the one who directs you. Accept me as the one who is your master now, your teacher, your Lord. Willingly choose to submit to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And that little preposition from that is translated here in my Bible, from can also be translated of, as in the authorized version. And so in English, when you have that, you have to choose which one will I translate. And so some translate it from me and others of me. But I think both meanings are in mind here. Jesus' invitation to discipleship is to invite us to learn from him, of him. Come, be yoked to me and learn from me, of me. And we have heard before, as only the Son knows the Father, and, and to know the Son is to know the Father, for the Son reveals Him, explains Him, John 1, 18, for they are one, John 10, 30. So the will of Christ is for you to come and to be yoked to Him, to follow His ways, to learn His ways, to believe in Him. And as we know Him, we will know the Father. We will be discipled. We will be learned or taught by Him. And to be a disciple of Jesus is demanding. We have already seen that earlier in chapter 10. when Sorry, chapter 8 it started. When, when, when those who said, Lord, we will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied to them, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to the other one he said, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Meaning, to follow him, to be a disciple of him, is to make him the priority. Later he said that he, to, be, to be a disciple of him is to like dancing with wolves, if you like. It is dangerous, so you need to be learn, learn how to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. It means to be a disciple that you will be opposed by others. You will be in conflict with others, even your own family, Matthew 10, 34 to 36. And that it means loving him, is following his, being his disciple and loving him, we have to love him more than we love father and mother and brother and sister, more than our very own lives. And so Jesus invites us, if you are weary and heavy laden, come. Take my yoke upon you. Commit yourself to me. Submit to my revelation, my teaching, my will and ways. And if you are rightly scared of that, apprehensive of that, because that sounds way harder than legalism, then you need to think again. Because Jesus explained his yoke and his burden is not the heavy yoke of legalism and self-righteousness, the heavy burden of legalism and self-righteousness. And so he motivates his call by saying, come, come and be discipled by the king.
in essence. I know that's an interpretation for he says, For I am gentle and humble in heart. Come and learn from the one, the one who know all things, the one to whom all things have been handed over, these things that you should know in order to know the Father and be right with the Father. Because I am meek, he says. Now Jesus used that same word back in the Beatitudes uh, of the blessed ones in the kingdom, where he says, blessed are the meek. And we have learned then, and I'm sure you can remember it crystal clear, being the good students that you are, uh, that meekness is not weakness. Um, meekness is not being weak in spirit or weak in courage. But it is someone who completely gives himself over to God, who trusts him implicitly. He does not have to exert himself. He does not have to assert himself, it's probably better, because he trusts in the sovereignty of God. That is meekness. One, actually, it is an expression of faith, faith in God, that I can trust the Lord through my circumstances and that I do not have to use my power and take things in my hand because I want it my way, but it is to trust the Father, trust God. And so he says, come to me because I am meek and I am humble in heart. Jesus is the one who knows the Father and the one to whom all things have been given. The one whom angels worshipped in heaven. The one who is God incarnate. He says he is humble in heart. That is who he is. It's one of the few descriptions we have of Jesus about himself. What did Jesus say about himself? He says, I am meek and I am humble. That means he is not proud. He's not arrogant. He's not lofty. He's not unapproachable, inaccessible. But he is humble. We can come to him. And the Lord of heaven has humbled himself to become a man, to become a servant on earth. And so certainly what Jesus is saying here, that we should come, yoke ourselves to him and learn to be meek and to be humble like he is. I, I, certainly that is part of it. But I think there is more here, that he is inviting us to be discipled by him himself. That He is the one who will teach us through His Spirit within us. This is not distant learning discipleship. This is attending class discipleship with Christ in everyday life. Because He was made like us in, in all ways. He, he suffered what we, what we suffered. He, he was tempted by the things we are tempted by. And so he is able to disciple us in all and every situation we may face. I will be with you. And we should come because he promised us rest for our souls. And as we heard before that the demands of being a disciple of Christ is high. 
The gate is small and the way is narrow, Jesus said. To follow Jesus is extremely challenging and demanding. And yet those who come, those who yoke themselves to Christ, those who learn from Christ, about Christ, Jesus said, you will find rest for your souls. The rest that comes from knowing Him, who He is, what He has done, what He is doing, and what He is going to do, what He will come to do. It is to rest in the knowledge that all things have been given to Him, have been handed over to Him. All authority, all judgment, all power, dominion, rule, authority, all of that. It is really to trust in the sovereignty of the benevolent King. And that means his, we can be assured that His plans and His purposes will come to fruition. His will and His ways is for the glory of God and for the benefit of ourselves. And even when things go wrong, and even when from our vantage point, uh, our expectations are, are, are not realized, we will have rest because we can trust in the Sovereign One. So Jesus' disciples will find rest from fear and anxiety, from uncertainty, really from meaningless futility, even though we may still face challenges and difficulties in this life. Jesus quotes here really Jeremiah 6.16, which reads, Stand by the ways and seek and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they say, we will not walk in it. And so again we hear, hear the will of the Father and the response of man. Jesus was saying, come to Him, be discipled by Me, learn from Me, learn the good and right way, and you will find rest for your souls. And Israel refused, and they were exiled shortly afterwards. In the day of Jesus, they refused and they were scattered to the ends of the earth until that day when He will come again. What will you choose? What will I choose? Come, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This yoke is a kind yoke. It's a gentle yoke. It's a good yoke. It's a benevolent yoke. It's being subjected to Christ and that is the best master you can have. It's to be under His tutelage, under His instruction, which is good and pleasant. It is a joy. It is a pleasure. And His burden is light. What He requires of us, His obligations of us are not burdensome. Jesus is not calling us to an easy, carefree life, but He calls us to love Him and to love others and out of love 
serve him and serve others. And a burden that is carried out in love, because of love, is not burdensome. John 5, 1 John 5, 3 says, For the, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Even to love can be very demanding, but by the very nature of love, we do it because we want to. Because we find joy in it. And so here, the Lord teach us that salvation is of God. He is the one who hides and reveals. And to execute that, he has handed that over to Christ. And Christ, how does he respond? He says, yeah, I do choose. And how do I choose? Come. Come. And those who come, they will receive eternal life. And those who refuse are already judged. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your, your infinite wisdom. Lord, our human minds are stretched when we think of your sovereignty, your control over all things, and yet we are responsible for our choices, our decisions. But in the mind of God, in the economy of Christ, it makes perfect sense. And Lord, therefore we trust you. We believe you. And Lord, I pray that the knowledge of your sovereignty would not keep us from coming, but it would in fact be the reason why we come. Because we can trust in one who is in absolute control over all things. So bless us, Lord, for those among us, Lord, who are heavy laden, who are wearied. I pray, Lord, that this morning through your Spirit and the preaching of your word, that they would come. That they would come and be yoked to you. That they would come and learn from you. And that you will give them rest for their souls. In Jesus' name, amen.